You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This program is brought to you in part by our amazing subscribers at Patreon. Join them now at patreon.com slash Big Picture Science. Like them, you can get early access to ad-free episodes, exclusive bonus content, and more. Our Patreon subscribers help keep us in production, and you can too. It's easy to sign up at patreon.com slash bigpicturescience. Thanks for your support. A stunning diversity of birds flock to this rare wetland to eat and rest. Snow geese, snowy egrets, avocets, plovers. Some are residents, but others come to recharge before continuing their long migratory flights. I'm at the Sunny Bono National Wildlife Refuge. The sandy edge here is the southern part of the Salton Sea in Southern California, a body of water rapidly evaporating and so increasingly saline as a result that the once abundant fish population is gone. The history of the Salton Sea is fascinating, but it is what's happening now that is making news. Close to where I stand, near where the geese, the snowy egrets, and the remarkable-looking curlews with their long curved bills carefully lift their feet through the sand, is a mineral source that is key for our renewable energy future. That's because recently, under the sea, industry scientists discovered a massive amount of a soft, silvery white metal that we desperately need to run our mobile phones and electric vehicles. The birds that flock here come for the water bugs, but the engineers are coming for lithium. Lithium is one material that's crucial for building the modern world. We'll look at it and others, sand and copper for example, as we consider materials upon which our high-tech lifestyle depends, about which many of us know little, and why we get into a heap of trouble when we take them for granted. This is Big Picture Science from the SETI Institute. I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. This episode is Lithium Valley. This part of California likes extremes. The Salton Sea over there is 15 miles wide by 35 miles long and is the state's largest lake. The 500,000 acres of cultivated land around us make up the legendary Imperial Valley, one of California's most productive agricultural areas. And beneath my feet, keeping everybody jumpy, is not just the state's, but the continent's largest fault zone, the San Andreas. 
And now the area seems to be home to the world's second largest deposit of the metal lithium that, by some estimates, could provide 40 percent of the ballooning global demand in the coming decades. There's nothing else out there that is metallic, that is so light and also so energy dense that we can use it to store power. And that essentially is, is why lithium matters so much. 500 miles north of where I'm standing, the association with the silicon transistor used in microprocessors gave Silicon Valley its name. The question here is, will the discovery of this fabulously valuable element, necessary for electric vehicles, mobile phones, and solar panels, turn the Imperial Valley into Lithium Valley? And at what cost? We'll come back to the scene unfolding in Lithium Valley, but first, can you describe how sand is turned into a semiconductor or even a pane of glass? Even engineers who work on these industries couldn't walk you through the whole process of how materials dug out of the ground travel the world before landing in your cell phone or battery. Journalist Ed Conway's book, Material World, The Six Raw Materials That Shape Modern Civilization, explores these journeys. One material, as you've guessed, is lithium. The other five are oil, copper, salt, iron, and sand. But here's a way to get oriented because our unfamiliarity with the process of production is not new. It goes back all the way to the number two pencil. Remember those? Ed Conway would like you to meet the invisible hand. Well, Ed, let's start with an overview of the concept of the invisible hand. This comes from a 1958 essay called I Pencil, written by the American economist Leonard Reed, and it has bearing on our relationship to things today. How so? It does. So this is a great essay, and I remember, so I, so I come from a kind of, I guess, an economics reporting background, and I remember reading this essay years and years ago and thinking it was just so interesting, and essentially it's just trying to tell the story of from the per first person, from the perspective of a pencil, about how the pencil is actually made. And, you know, so it explains, look, the wood in me came from cedar forests in one part of the world. The lead, it's actually graphite, came from a mine somewhere else. The metal that, that attaches the eraser to the end came from one place and it was, you know, went through a refining process and so on and so forth. And what it does is it kind of builds up this picture of First of all, how a pencil is made, and it turns out it's a far more complicated process than you might have thought, and it's also pretty fascinating. And secondly, the fact that there are so many different people involved in this process, in so many different companies, doing so many different things, that there is not one single person who knows how to make a pencil, that it is just too complex a process to understand. And I just remember reading this and thinking, I wonder what you know, the story would be for all sorts of other things. I wonder what the story would be for silicon chips. I wonder what the story would be for a, a motor vehicle. And it turns out our, our understanding of actually how these things are made and, and what we would these days call the supply chains that put things together is actually much more primitive than we think it is. And it's not just pencils, it's everything else as well. Where does the term the invisible hand fit in? So the invisible hand is this, is this concept that goes back uh, to Adam Smith. He produced a book called The Wealth of Nations, and he talked within that book about the invisible hand, the idea being that each different person is just following their own personal incentives. They're not really thinking about the pencil. They're just thinking about making the thing that they are particularly good at. So they're thinking about chopping down wood. They're thinking about milling wood. But those individual incentives that each different person has around the world adds up to this product 
this amazing product that changed someone's life on the other side of the world. And in fact, you found while researching your book is that no one person could describe the entire process of how, say, a silicon wafer was made, even when they were part of the assembly. So it continues today, yeah. probably even, even more so. Even more so. If you were writing iPencil today about a silicon chip, what would that actually look like? You know, can you think of anything that is more important for the world we live in right now, at least for the modern economy? I don't think so. And the funny thing was that a lot of people who are working on manufacturing silicon chips don't have the foggiest about what's happening at the other end of the chain, where the silicon actually comes from. Rather kind of underlining that point, yeah, about the invisible hand. Even they don't really think about how it all fits together. Well, let's get into how semiconductors are made, and I'm going to set you up for this if you're ready. This material we're about to talk about uh, is in high demand. It feels like it's plentiful, but is actually in short supply, and it is upon which our electronics depend. It is quartz, it is made from silica and oxygen, and Ed, it is otherwise known as? Sand? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Isn't that right? I believe you write about it. <laughs> well, no, it is It is sand. No, I, like a, there's a large part of my book that's about sand. I'm kind of obsessed with sand. Well, let's talk about that, but I do have to ask of why you weren't sure whether or not I was talking about sand. It is on the cover of your <laughs> well, book, and you have a whole chapter devoted I know, to it. I, I'll tell you why. So when you talk to people who make silicon chips, so I have, the, I have this whole chapter about sand, uh, not chapter, whole section, like you know, thousands of words about sand. You've got sand that goes into glass, you've got sand that goes into cement and concrete. Um, and then you've got what I assume was sand that goes into silicon chips. And also there's different types of sand you need to make the stuff you need to make the silicon chips. Uh, so sand is amazing and it's plentiful, but it's also no two grains are alike. And there are very different types of sand, very different type kind of purity, very different shapes. And then it turns out, so the definition of sand is a grain of a certain size, okay? So in some, it's, there's something called the Udden-Wentworth scale, which is grains of a particular dimension, really small grains of stuff. And it doesn't actually have to be quartz, okay? So you could, technically speaking, sugar is a sand, okay? And salt in its granular form is a sand. But here's the thing, when you're making a silicon chip, you do want to use quartz, okay? So you want to use a very silica-heavy um, mineral. In, in chemical terms, it's exactly the same as sand, a silica sand, okay? However, when you're putting it into those furnaces to, turn, to smelt it, to turn it into the kind of thing that eventually becomes a silicon wafer, which we then turn into a silicon chip, you need large chunks of it, okay? So you need basically baseball-sized chunks uh, of quartz, and then you throw them into the furnace, and if you threw sand in there, it would, in all these convection flows you have in, this, in the, these electric arc furnaces, it would float up into the air and it would get pulled into the kind of the filtration tubes and it would gum them up and the machinery would break. So my, the reason I kind of, my pedantic brain was like being, well, actually, technically, according to the Udden-Wentworth scale, it's not necessarily <laughs> sand. And so I hesitated for that, for that reason that maybe one or two people around the world will you know, appreciate. Reporting on this, on this subject has changed you forever. Um, so talk to us then a, a little bit about where, where it comes from, to give us a sense of the origins of these semiconductors. It turns out that the, the silicon that goes into silicon chips comes from, there's, there's a relatively small number of mines around, uh, or quarries mostly, around the world, which have really quite high purity quartz. 
sand and lumps of quartz. Uh, and the one that I focus on in the book is a place called Serrabal, which is a mine in the north of Spain. Um, and it's, they do this amazing quartz and sand, which is really blinding white. Um, and then that's kind of chucked into a furnace and you melt it down and eventually you end up with something that kind of looks like a metal. It's funny, they, the process is smelting and the most advanced technology we have today, and it's the same process for making silicon chips as it is for making solar panels. That most advanced process begins in this almost kind of dark ages environment with coal dust everywhere, because you need coal in there to try and break the oxygen off the, uh, off the silica. Uh, and at, at temperatures of up to one and a half thousand degrees with people wearing kind of fireproof suits. So it doesn't feel in any way kind of super advanced, but that is, that is where it all begins. So it begins at a mine where stuff is blasted out of the ground. And then that stuff is then taken away uh, to another location near that particular mine in Cerebel, where it's smelted down into, into something that looks like a metal. But the irony is at that point, although it's like 98, 99% purity, that is still nowhere near pure enough to eventually become the silicon that goes into silicon chips. Because you know any rogue atoms that are not silicon kind of get in the way. And w when we're talking about transistors that are so small, you cannot see them. You know, every atom dimensionally really matters. I mean, they're so small, they are smaller than the wavelength of visible light. That's the, the analogy that just completely blows my mind every time I think about it. They are invisible. They're literally invisible. Uh, that's the scale of, of, of what we are able to create on a daily basis. And that process of taking something, making it purer and purer, making it have the, the incredibly, literally, it literally becomes the most perfect thing that humankind has ever made. And that's not, in this case, that's not an exaggeration. It is perfect in terms of its chemical um, components. So it is 99.999999. I lose track of how many nines here, but it's supposed to be like 10 nines, ideally, of purity. That's the chemical thing. That's fair enough. That takes an enormous kind of energy intensive process to get you there. But then even after you have that 99.10 you know, nines worth of purity silicon, you still need to then break it down all over again and then recreate it. So the atoms, rather than being higgledy-piggledy, you know, multi-crystals, multi so you have a perfect crystal with all the atoms kind of stacked almost like eggs in, a, in an egg box. Uh, and that again involves another process called the Tchaikovsky process, which involves almost kind of melting it down and starting all over again. But long before this silicon, this atom of silicon, which began in a mine somewhere in Spain, or indeed, you know, there's a few other places, there's some in the, in the US and there's, there's, there's many in China. Long before it has arrived at the semiconductor foundry where it's gonna become part of a silicon chip, it has been, around the world numerous times. It's had transformations, it's been melted down, it's been vaporized, it's been distilled. So many, it's been kind of, you know, hammered to within a, an ounce of its existence. And that to me is kind of amazing. And we don't think about that in the slightest, even before, uh, even, even when you think about a silicon chip, that's the bit that, that really has never been discussed much in the past. But what is discussed is, you know, who is making the semiconductors and why there are big trade wars over semiconductors now. And I live about 60 miles from the Silicon Valley in California, and I was genuinely shocked to learn from your book that semiconductors are no longer made in the Silicon Valley. They stopped making them about a decade ago. Ed, why are the semiconductor plants in Taiwan now, almost all of them? And why do we rely on Taiwan for that finished product? Well, I mean, it's not all of them, but it is basically a lot of the very best. And it's because Taiwan, this, this company in particular, TSMC, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, uh, Corporation, they just are so good at it. 
they are so, so good at getting those dimensions incredibly small. So in order to, to, to make a transistor where the size is smaller than the wavelength of visible light, it's smaller than you know a, a red blood cell, a, a white blood cell, it's smaller than a coronavirus. I, I think actually you could fit like four coronaviruses or maybe even six or eight into a single, the single space of where a transistor is. And we make this stuff on a daily basis. Um, in order to do that, you need to use extraordinary machinery. You need to harness that machinery. You need to do some pretty you know, challenging things. Um, and this company in Taiwan has just proved itself to be really, really good at making chips uh, in, in large quantities uh, with tiny, tiny kind of footprints. And I think also they were in the right place at the right time when it came to the big smartphone revolution. So, so Intel weren't that interested in smartphone chips for a long time because they had all of their, their PCs. Um, whereas TSMC was this company which didn't, wasn't really aligned with any one other company. They were like just a fab, as it's known, you know, a plant where other people, other people who made designs for chips could then send their designs and, and TSMC would make them. Well, Apple did that and, you know, Samsung and a lot of, actually Samsung made their own chips, but a lot of other people like Nvidia sent their designs to TSMC and they were like, okay, absolutely, we'll make it. And the upshot of all of this is that pretty much all of the smartphone chips, the, and when I, when, I, when I say chips, by the way, there's loads of different types of chips as well, just like there's loads of different types of sand. But in this case, I'm talking about the kind of brain chip uh, that goes to the logic chip that's uh, inside all of our smartphones. Um, the vast majority of those are made in Taiwan. And if obviously something were to happen there, and you know, there's always stories about China being on the brink of, of invading or whatever it might be, then that is incredibly important, incredibly consequential for the global economy, because that means the entire manufacturer of smartphones is then at risk. And it is, when we talk about pinch points, there's quite a few, and I talk about lots of them in the book, and they're both scary, but kind of certainly interesting. Taiwan is definitely one of them, but it's not the only one. I mean, in order to make the actual silicon wafers that we're talking about, you need to, to melt down that pure 99 point, however many nines it is, nine, 10, by the way, uh, but sometimes you can get 11, but let's not go into that. You need to melt that down into a special crucible and then reform it into a perfect kind of silicon lattice, atomic silicon lattice. To do that, you need special crucibles and to make those crucibles, you need a special type of quartz sand, which is another type of sand, by the way, not to kind of confuse the whole quartz sand thing. But there is only one part of the world where you get the quartz sand, high purity quartz, that is pure enough to make the crucibles in which you make your silicon wafers. One place in the world, and that place, at least at scale, and that place is spruce pine in North Carolina. And so... Every chip in the world, the, the ones that we're using right now, the ones that you're listening to this device on, have at one point in their lives relied on the quartz from this place in North Carolina to be made. It's everything, everything. And we are, I suppose that's the other point, we are just one link away, both from specific places and specific lumps of rock that come out of the ground in only one part of the world. And I find that kind of amazing. We think that we've transcended this as a species, and yet we are still, you know, entrenched in this material world, as I call it. Coming up, the world's biggest man-made hole sets the scene for considering the environmental costs of extraction. In order to mine copper, you just have to blast massive, massive quantities of rock out of the ground. 
We're looking at key raw materials and, later, consider the future of Lithium Valley on Big Picture Science. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Before we return you to Lithium Valley, there's another source of energy that we should mention, specifically you. Big Picture Science depends on listener support to stay in production. And through Patreon, your donation is rewarded with perks. Just go to patreon.com slash bigpicturescience and join us. Because everyone who joins us on Patreon gets early access to ad-free versions of every episode. And that's just for openers. For only $5 a month, you also get access to exclusive bonus content, like Seth's discussion about his book, Confessions of an Alien Hunter, as well as chats about gravitational waves and the James Webb Space Telescope. We rely on support from listeners, and on Patreon, you don't have to give much. Every bit helps. So please, join us at patreon.com slash bigpicturescience, and unlike supplies of rare elements, our appreciation is infinite. Thank you. As journalist Ed Conway writes, we're attached to the idea that we're living in an increasingly immaterial world where everything that matters is intangible, like our apps and the online networks. But it's an illusion. Try using those apps without a computer or a cell phone. Or make steel without iron, which is used to create the machinery that churns out our cell phones, not to mention almost everything else the world buys. But the extraction of these materials upon which we so depend can come with a hefty environmental price. Ed Conway is the economics and data editor of Sky News and a columnist for The Times in London. And he is the author of Material World, the six raw materials that shape modern civilization. These include sand, salt, oil, iron, lithium, and what we need for electronic circuitry, copper. I went to uh, a mine called Chukikamata, which is uh, in the Atacama Desert in Chile. And uh, it is the world's biggest man-made hole. There's one other place which vies for it, for the title of world's biggest man-made hole, which is Bingham Canyon in Utah. And I think Chukikamata has just about got it beat because it's, it, there's more quantity of copper that's come out of there. But the main point to take away here is, in order to mine copper, you just have to blast massive, massive quantities of rock out of the ground. Sometimes people kind of think that the biggest thing that we get out of the ground is iron in terms of metal. But actually, we, we, we extract far more ore to get copper than we do to get iron, just because the quantity of copper you get in each tonne of rock is really small. Maybe kind of 0.6% of each rock that you pull out is copper. And that's partly because we've mined all the easy copper. You know, there's very few easy bits of copper left in the world anywhere. So we are right now just having to dig ever bigger holes and process ever more rock to get hold of the copper we need. 
And we need crazy amounts of copper if we're going to fulfill all these promises we've made to ourselves. If you want to have all the wind turbines that we're promising to build you know, on our shores and indeed off our shores, you need really long, thick, kind of baseball bat thickness uh, of copper wires connecting them with the shore because that's, that's what you need to transmit uh, this electricity. And we will have to, in the coming, I think, 20, 22, 23 years, mine more copper than we have mined in all of human existence going back 5,000 years. And this is one of the metals we were the first one, one of the first metals we learned how to, to mine. So that means we have to have more of these massive, massive holes in the ground. And when I went to this one in Chile and stood on the edge, it was like, it felt like going back and seeing the Grand Canyon for the first time, except we made this, you know? It wasn't a river and millions of years or thousands, hundreds of thousands of years of erosion. It was humans blasting it away. Uh, and so I find that kind of both like awe-inspiring in every respect, the scale of it, but also the degree of destruction that's necessary in order to fulfill our lives and to fulfill our environmental promises as well. Because if there's no electricity, then it's, it's you know, game over for civilization. And without copper, we don't have that electricity, you know, there, there isn't really anything we've come up with that's able to, to transmit and generate electricity as, as well as copper. So, yeah, it's, it's chastening. In a moment, I'm going to ask you why you picked these six materials. But on, on the point of copper, this may come as a surprise for those of us who associate copper with landline phones and something that perhaps our parents or our grandparents had, not one of the key materials for the future. Um, so if you could address that, why you picked these six materials for your book. Copper is one of them. The others are oil, salt, sand, apparently to your surprise, uh, lithium and iron. <laughs> I'm kidding about that. Yeah, but um, uh, yeah, so why yeah. those? I mean, it seems like there's a lot of stuff but, we need. Yeah, there's a lot of them. And it's not an exhaustive list. I mean, you know, I chose six. I would have had more if I could, could fit them into the book. But as you know, it's quite a chunky book. And I didn't want people to, to get completely overwhelmed by things. Um, you, need, you still need copper in enormous quantities. We may not need it so much for our landline phones. In interestingly, a lot of our communication these days, including most of our communication on the internet, is via, well, it's via sand, because we turn sand into fiber optics. And fiber optics are the internet. The internet is, is a network of servers all around the world linked by fiber optic cables, you know. It is a physical thing, the internet. And so we need that glass to, to make all of those, those fiber optics and for that we need sand. And we need sand for concrete and we need sand, well, quartz, whatever you want to call it. Uh, we need it for our silicon chips as well. But that's just the start. One of the takeaways from your book is that these are elements or these are materials that are very hard to uh, substitute for. Yeah, and co copper is a really good example of that because um, there have been so many times throughout history where people have said we're going to run out of copper. Um, they, they were saying it in the early ages of the, the electrical revolution when Thomas Edison, you know, all of that, that period and the kind of turn of the 20th century, people were saying we're going to run out of copper. And Edison had problems, you know, creating his network because he was struggling to get hold of enough copper. And yet throughout history, we've become incredibly good not necessarily as substituting. You know, you can use aluminium. It's, it's, it's not as good. It doesn't pass through enough as much power as, as copper. You could theoretically use silver, but that would be really expensive and we don't have as much of that. And also it's not quite as ductile as, as, as copper. And the point with all of these things, you know, whether it's lithium, whether it's copper, whether it's iron as well for steel, is that 
they are both amazing at doing what they, they do. So copper is amazing at conducting electricity and we use it in conjunction with magnets to generate most of our electricity. You know, that we have electricity at all right now is because of copper. We are talking thanks to what's happening in the copper of a solar panel or the copper of a wind turbine or the copper that's there in the generator that's attached to a nuclear uh, power plant or indeed the same thing with coal or gas. That's copper. It's copper that is at the heart of that kind of transformation uh, from, you know, solar energy or indeed motor uh, energy into the power that we use every day. Copper is there all the time. It's just that because it's in invisible to us, you know, it's in, that, it's in that generator, it's in that dynamo, it's in the wires that are hidden away behind our walls. We just don't think about it that much. And you just touched on something that is so fundamental in your book, which is we are living this illusion or this idea that the future is going to be ethereal, immaterial. It's going to be um, the internet. It's going to be ideas, you know. But all of that depends and rests on the physical world and physical materials, and we still need them. Totally. We like to think that ideas are all that matter. And, and don't get me wrong, it's incredibly important. It's thanks to ideas and it's thanks to human ingenuity that we are able to do all the amazing things we are these days. You know, look at AI, for instance. However, that all still depends. Like you say, there's a dependence thing. It depends on this quite small suite of materials without which nothing else would function. So AI still depends on those servers. It depends on those semiconductors. It depends on energy to run the server plants and to run those uh, computer chips that are making it actually happen. And I just think that we kind of underplay the importance of that physical side of the world these days. It's, it's not to say it's the only thing, like I don't mean that at all. I still think the ingenuity is massively important. It's just that it is forgotten a lot of the time. And I think the reason why it particularly matters right now is in order to fulfill those climate promises we've made, we really do have to depend a lot more on these physical materials. We have to depend on getting more copper because you need crazy amounts of copper in electric cars, you know? No one talks about that, but you do much more copper uh, than you could possibly imagine. You need crazy amounts of, of steel if you're going to make wind turbines. You need large amounts of concrete as well if you're going to build all this infrastructure. If you're going to make a grid, you know, and we have real problems in the US and in Europe with the kind of very old electricity grids that aren't really enough able to deal with what we're going to need in the future. So we have to have a massive infrastructure revolution if we're going to fulfill these promises, which means, guess what, more materials. And we're replacing a lot of the stuff we burn with the stuff we build. And that's obviously great news because the emissions hopefully in the long run will be much lower. But we still need to kind of mine that stuff. We still need to refine it. We still need to get it. And it's very easy to demonize the people getting stuff out of the ground. But the reality is, without them, we're not going to be able to deliver this, you know, all these big promises we're making. Uh, and so that's a little dose of kind of reality, uncomfortable reality, is I think what we need right now, because there's a lot of delusion about how we're actually going to get to the promised land. But I can't tell you maybe how a nuclear reactor works or how to build a rocket because we turn those you know systems over to experts. Mm. Um, isn't that how it's supposed to be? I guess, why should we understand the supply chain? Why do we need to know? Mm. Well, I think, you know, I think you can make a strong argument, and I mentioned this in the book, that actually it's almost a mark of the success of modern civilization that we don't have to think about these things all that much. You just kind of order them and they turn up. And... You don't have to go through the unfathomable complexity of, of silicon chips or even something simple, you know, simple stuff, seemingly simple stuff like concrete is actually involves amazing chemical transformations to, to become a, a substance that we rely on every day. 
We don't think about this stuff all that much, but I think there's a few reasons why, why we should. First of all, it, in a world where you can reasonably expect that it will always be able to turn up at your doorstep because you order it, that's fine. But we might not be in that world anymore right now. You know, we're living in what might be another Cold War. Things are quite scary on a geopolitical basis. And so that's, that's one thing. The second thing is that we're all, you know, countries around the world are pushing at the moment to try and get a lot of the same materials at the same time because we're all trying to transform our economies. You've got the, you know, the energy transition as, as it's known. All of these things mean that there's a bit of a race right now for silicon, for when it goes into semiconductors, also when it goes into solar panels, but also batteries, um, a lot of the copper. These, these things are, are a big part of how we get to kind of net zero, as it's sometimes called. Uh, and so there's a lot of competition for them. That matters. And so you need, people are kind of racing for them at the same time. And I think that the, the other reason that it matters is that, excuse the sirens, there's some sirens blaring outside here in London. Um, Another, another reason why it matters is that um, I, think, I think there is an innate human kind of satisfaction that comes of realising where things came from. And I think that we've lost that a little bit. I think it matters. The more I've understood about how things are made, the more, I mean, it's not like a self-help book, but it kind of has helped me to try to feel at ease with the planet around me. When you understand how a silicon chip is made, or a solar panel, or a wind turbine, or anything else, or concrete, or bricks, or slabs of metal, then I think it satisfies something innate in human curiosity. We, we are, for, for the, from the very beginning, you know, what's the definition of, of, of us as a species? We take materials out of the ground and we fashion them into tools that enable us to improve our standard of living. And that's what we are still doing today, except we don't spend much time thinking about what the tools are, where they came from. I think the final thing unless I'd say... Unless there's supply, hmm. unless there's a problem with the supply and we can't, you know, get a hold unless of the things, then we start supply. thinking about it. But I think the final thing, and I think this is totally related, is that by not thinking about where things come from, I think we've been a bit blind to the environmental consequences of, of where they come out of the ground and what we do to, to get them. And I think when you start looking at the world through the prism of these materials, which I never did in the past, but now I just can't help it. Um, when you look at the world through this prism, then you see, gosh, in order to make that, it took so much energy. It took, you needed coal to do it. To make silicon chips, you need coal. Like I, that, that blew my mind and it continues to blow my mind. Um, and you need a lot of energy to go into them. Yet, because we just don't think all that much about how stuff is made and how it gets to us, I think we, we lose sight of just what a big footprint we have on the planet. And we're getting better at understanding that, but I think this is another perspective of how we need to, to understand it. Coming up, the recent discovery of lithium under the Salton Sea in California could make the U.S. lithium independent, but the area is also a delicate ecosystem. What happens next in Lithium Valley is next on Big Picture Science. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. 
complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible, because we're already doing it, all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. It's not yet 9 a.m. and it's still winter, but the sun is strong enough on the sandy path by the Salton Sea that it gives you a sense of just how hot it can get in the Sonoran Desert. But even the record temperatures of 130 degrees Fahrenheit is no match for the blistering conditions deep below. About a mile beneath the Salton Sea, a vast supply of geothermal brine churns at temperatures up to 700 degrees. The area's mud volcanoes release some of the heat, while the geothermal plants tap deep into the source to generate energy. There are 11 geothermal power stations in the area, making it the second largest geothermal field in California. But those companies are now keenly focused on something that the brine contains other than heat. The recent discovery of at least 4 million metric tons of lithium, concentrations far higher than thought, has energized these companies to shift into high gear to prioritize extracting it, moving their attention from the modest profits of geothermal energy production to the gold mine of lithium recovery. Lithium is one of the six materials that journalist Ed Conway identified in his book as essential to building our future. It is at the heart of every pretty high power battery. And if you are going to have a green energy future, you need batteries. You need batteries to store the power that you're going to use in electric cars because you don't want to be burning gas anymore. You need batteries potentially to back up our grid. You need batteries in enormous quantities. And at the heart of many of those batteries, it's just hard to think of anything else that does the job of storing that power as well as lithium. Industry scientists estimate that the amount of lithium under the Salton Sea is roughly the equivalent of 382 million electric vehicle batteries. It's all very promising, and indeed, talking to people here, you sense their excitement about what's unfolding in the valley, that something big is coming. But there are also dark clouds in this California sky. Environmentalists and some residents are concerned that the pursuit of lithium extraction is taking place without sufficient consideration for an ecosystem already on the brink that is home to unique wildlife and a dwindling supply of water, perhaps California's most precious resource. Right, I'm Michael McKibben. I'm an economic geologist and geochemist by training, and I work on mineral resources and their chemistry. We use lithium batteries in increasing amounts. Perhaps at home you have, in addition to a laptop, you have drills or weed whackers or tree saws that are powered by lithium. And I think all those applications are going to increase over time. And that's partly just because of where it is on the periodic table. There's nothing else out there that is metallic, that is so light and also so energy dense that we can use it to store power. So lithium ultimately was formed in stars and then gets incorporated into planets when they accrete and grow. Uh, it's the third element on the periodic table. It has the highest energy density of any metal, so it can store the most energy per mass of any metal. And that's why it's so valuable, because it's so light and can store so much electrical energy. 
One of our oldest substances, lithium, created in the Big Bang, made its way through time and various distribution processes to the mineral-rich water, or brine, under the Salton Sea. Not just lithium, though. The brine contains most of the periodic table of the elements, in particular potassium, zinc, manganese, calcium, and iron. Heat from the brine, a result of the tectonic activity below, produces the steam that drives geothermal turbines. Yeah, they don't usually have to pump the brine to get it to come up. Sometimes they do, but once it starts flowing, they don't have to pump on it at all. It it naturally comes up and starts boiling or, as they say in the industry, flashing. And they send that brine into big chambers that are called separators, and they're designed so that the steam comes out the top and the brine sinks to the bottom. So if we had a cup of it here, would it be watery and kind of mucky, or would it be thick and muddy? What would it look like? It looks like chicken soup. (laughs) <laughs> You've thought about this. Without the noodles. <laughs> it uh, is very dense. It's very salty. It's 25% total dissolved salts. So only 75% of it is water. So it's very messy stuff to work with. It might be messy, but some say it's worth it. Dr. McKibben is one of the scientists who recently discovered that the Salton Sea contains one of the largest known brine deposits of lithium in the world. It holds between 1 in 5 and up to 15 million metric tons of dissolved lithium. So those estimates were done by myself and Pat Dobson on Orange Berkeley Lab. So you're one of the ones that helped determine how much lithium is down there. Was there an advancement in technology or access or something that allowed you to determine that figure that came about only recently? I mean, the brine's been down there a long time. We've known that there's lithium down there. What changed? Nothing changed. I did estimates of dissolved metals in the brines probably in the 1990s. And I calculated back then the amounts of zinc and copper and gold and silver that were in the brines. So it was really just taking those kind of estimates I'd made earlier for those metals and doing the same thing for lithium. Plus, nobody was interested in lithium back in the 1990s. It wasn't used for much other than making grease and for therapeutic reasons for bipolar treatments. And so it was the development of lithium batteries that really stimulated the interest in particularly electric vehicles. And the irony is actually that really it's only quite recently that we've started to realize that we really need it. Of all of the materials I look at in the book, Lithium is the one that we have the least experience of mining and part of the challenge in the future. So listen, we've got got thousands of years of experience of mining copper. Same thing for iron. And for that matter, things like, you know, sand and salt. We are only now starting to mine lithium in large quantities. We're at the beginning of a massive lithium mining boon. How lithium mining and refining has unfolded so far takes a hefty environmental toll. Open pit mining in China and Australia can pollute air and deplete water resources. Lithium extraction at the Atacama Desert in Chile, done by pumping lithium brine onto the land where it's left to evaporate, drains scarce water resources and scars the land. I spent quite a lot of time in what is still, you know, the world's biggest, single biggest reserve of lithium, which is the Atacama desert. It's, it's, it's the Salade Atacama. It's a salt lake in Chile where there is an incredible amount of lithium in this brine locked underneath this, this crust of salt. It's an extraordinary place, but again, the footprint of humankind is becoming quite obvious because now across that previously untouched environment, 
if you look at, at a kind of satellite map or a satellite photo of, of, of that area, you see these massive evaporation pools, massive, visible from space, all across a lot of the Sala de Atacama. Um, and you're starting to see them crop up as well in other parts of South America as well. This is just you know, another place where there is lots of lithium. And the local people, I think, well, there's some people who are doing very well out of it. There's, there's indigenous communities who feel threatened by it. They feel that what is theirs is being taken away from them. And we're, we're at risk slightly of repeating mistakes that we've made many times before of not being sensitive to that. And that's just one side of it. Then there's the environmental impact as well. In Latin America, it is well known that for every metric ton of lithium, it requires about 550,000 gallons, more than almost two acres of water. Frank Ruiz is the Salton Sea Program Director for Audubon, California. He is also a pastor and runs a community group that engages Latino families in conservation and policymaking, and he sits on California's Lithium Valley Commission. And just to give you a perspective, one acre of foot of water equals about 327,000 gallons, enough to sustain two families of four for a whole year. It's the depletion of the groundwater table in the brine. These are shallow groundwater brines in South America. They're not deep geothermal brines like they are here. And they're causing ecological problems. They're dropping the groundwater table, killing the trees. They're maybe ruining the uh, lagoons around the cellars there, which are important foraging and breeding habitat for the flamingos. But the plan for lithium extraction at the Salton Sea is touted as environmentally friendly. Since the brine is already being used by the geothermal companies, theoretically they could simply extract the lithium from that soup using lithium filters, although it's a little more complicated than that, and then pump the brine back into the ground. But it concerns Dr. Ruiz that this clean process of direct lithium extraction, or DLE, is new and untested at scale. So at the peak of this industry, you're talking about, from what you know, what we hear, close to 600,000 metric tons of lithium. It's going to require a lot of water. And how that indirectly impacts the communities, the people, and the birds and the wildlife is an easy math. Water is like a bank account. And with more users, well, the, the money is going to run out. Today, only 1% of global lithium is mined in the U.S. The Salton Sea deposits could fulfill up to 40% of global demand for lithium and make the U.S. self-sufficient in its supply. Yeah, so the advantage of having the lithium deposit here is it's domestic. So our current supply chain for lithium runs from Australia and South America into China and other parts of Asia where they make lithium cathodes for electric vehicle batteries. And then those batteries are then sold to the automakers who put them in, in the electric vehicles. And that's a very long supply chain. That's about 50,000 kilometers long and has a high carbon footprint because you need to transport all that material by ship or by rail. So the advantage of having the resource here and putting battery manufacturing and ultimately battery recycling here is you cut out all those middlemen, if you will, you reduce the transportation costs, and you can also verify that the lithium is coming from an environmentally friendly source. The other environmental advantage is to do the lithium processing in South America. They have to use fossil fuel-based power to do that electricity, and here they're going to be using renewable energy, geothermal energy, to power the whole process. So it's a win-win in many different aspects in terms of environmental issues. 
The multi-billion-dollar lithium companies will launch their production near fragile ecosystems. A national wildlife refuge is nearby. Dr. Ruiz is an advocate for the more than 400 species of migratory birds that depend on the already shrinking Salton Sea as a stopover during their migrations. In California, we lost over 95, 97% of the wetlands to either agriculture or urban developments in the last few decades. The Salton Sea offers one of the very few places in terms of habitat for nesting, for feeding, for roosting, for a lot of the migratory birds that connect uh, birds from Alaska all the way down to South America. Pelicans, cormorants, and then you have a lot of the shorebirds that come here in the hundreds of thousands. The Salton Sea, like everything else in the area, depends on a diminishing supply of water from the Colorado River. Besides the loss of wetland, the sea's evaporation dries out the lake bed around it. We have one of the, if not the, the largest asthma rates in the state of California. It is common to hear a lot of young kids and families complaining of nosebleeds, COPD, and as the Salton Sea continues to recede, our concern is that it will continue exposing harmful playa with uh, heavy metals and toxicity that can contribute to the health impacts of the whole region. What about that concern about the amount of water that's required in lithium recovery processing? Yeah, first of all, I'll say that the DLE process, the consumption of water during that process is not yet completely quantified and the companies are working really hard to recycle almost all the water that they use. And some of them are saying they're recycling 80% of the water they're using. So I'm not convinced that the water issue is, is as big as people think it is, but they're basing that concern on the water consumption caused by other kinds of lithium extraction around the world. And so it's gonna take time to see exactly what the water consumption is gonna be. The other thing that the companies can do is they make their own fresh water. They cool the steam and condense it back into what's called steam condensate, which is very pure water. And some of the companies have talked about using that water for the lithium processing. And then they're using their own renewable geothermal energy to power these processes. And so I think there are a lot of uh, issues that people are worried about that are based on how lithium is mined elsewhere in the world that won't necessarily apply here. While I was at the Salton Sea, there was a ceremonial groundbreaking for one of the major new lithium companies, which hopes to be operating at scale in about two years. There's a lot of optimism around this new industry, but also trepidation. Can we achieve a green energy future while meeting the needs of water allocation and local ecology? Can we get the balance right? Frank Ruiz considers the big picture. We cannot afford to throw the communities under the bus and just to for uh, the wealthier communities to be driving in a nice electric vehicle. We need to make sure, you know, that this is done responsibly, not just with the environment, but with the communities altogether to create uh, an economic opportunity for those regions, to do it in a way that is least impactful to the environment, least impactful to the natural resources. Thanks to all the guests in this episode. Ed Conway is the economics and data editor of Sky News and columnist for The Times in London. He's the author of Material World, The Six Raw Materials That Shape Modern Civilization. We also heard from Frank Ruiz, the Audubon, California, Salton Sea Program Director. 
and Michael McKibben, a geologist at the University of California, Riverside. Now it's time for the big picture, and assistant producer Brian Edwards joins us as he was involved closely with this program. Brian, your big picture thoughts. It is an amazing story, and the Salton Sea is a pretty extraordinary place. You really get all these things lining up. Uh, this wealth of a, a resource, energy to run the plants that's naturally occurring there, this fragile ecosystem and communities that could benefit from this mining here or could suffer greatly from it as well. But it's really part of a bigger picture of how we gather and use raw materials. Does it strike you that a lot of the discussion is about how we extract the materials, but there's really no questioning the thirst (laughs) or the thirst, the desire for the materials to create, yes, lithium batteries and, and renewable energy technology, but also cell phones and computers. I mean, part of this equation does not include degrowth, does it? It doesn't. We've, we're talking a lot of clean and a lot of green, but the, the fact of the matter is that a lot of it is still just stuff, that we are pretty addicted to having new stuff, making new stuff, and always having more things. And we make choices about the things we want to buy and the things we want to have, and it's good to be informed consumers or try to buy you know, either the, the best or the greenest version of something, but sometimes we buy things we don't need or we don't need right away. Uh, don't need a new cell phone every couple of years. You, know, you don't need a new computer every three, but there are plenty of people who are kind of caught up in always having the, the newest thing, which contributes to this. This show is assembled thanks to the medal of senior producer Gary Niederhoff and assistant producers Brian Edwards and Shannon Rose Geary. I am the executive producer of Big Picture Science, Molly Bentley. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization that searches for life beyond Earth. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth Shostak. Also, big thanks to our listeners and our Patreon supporters. The original music in the show is by Dewey DeLay and June Miyake. This episode of Big Picture Science that looks at how a recent discovery of a metal could change everything is called Lithium Valley. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science, everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts.